Chapter Two of the Deerslayer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deerslayer by James Fenimore Cooper. Chapter Two. Thou art passing from the lake's green side, and the hunter's hearth away. For the time of flowers, for the summer's pride, daughter, thou canst not stay. Mrs. Hemans Edith, A Tale of the Woods, Part Two, One Ninety One to Ninety Four. Our two adventurers had not far to go. Hurry knew the direction as soon as he had found the open spot in the spring, and he now led on with the confident step of a man assured of his object. The forest was dark, as a matter of course, but it was no longer obstructed by underbrush, and the footing was firm and dry. After proceeding near a mile, March stopped, and began to cast about him with an inquiring look, examining the different objects with care, and occasionally turning his eyes on the trunks of the fallen trees, with which the ground was well sprinkled, as is usually the case in an American wood especially in those parts of the country where timber has not yet become valuable. "'This must be the place, Deerslayer,' March at length observed. "'Here is a beech by the side of a hemlock, with three pines at hand, and yonder is a white birch with a broken top, and yet I see no rock nor any of the branches bent down as I told you would be the case.' "'Broken branches are unskillful landmarks, as the least experienced know that branches don't often break of themselves,' returned the other and they also lead to suspicion and discoveries. The Delawares never trust to broken branches unless it is in friendly times and on an open trail. As for the beeches and pines and hemlocks, why, they are to be seen on all sides of us, not only by twos and threes, but by forties and fifties and hundreds. Very true, dear Slayer, but you never calculate on position. Here is a beech and a hemlock. Yes and there is another beech and a hemlock, as loving as two brothers, or for that matter more loving than some brothers. And yonder are others, for neither tree is a rarity in these woods. I fear me, Hurry, you are better at trapping beaver and shooting bears than at leading on a blindish sort of a trail. Ha! There's what you wish to find after all. Now, Deerslayer, this is one of your Delaware pretensions, for hang me if I see anything but these trees, which do seem to start up around us in a most unaccountable and perplexing manner. Look this away, Hurry. Here, in a line with the black oak, don't you see the crooked sapling that is hooked up in the branches of the basswood near it? Now, that sapling was once snow-ridden, and got the bend by its weight, but it never straightened itself, and fastened itself in among the basswood branches in the way you see. The hand of man did that act of kindness for it." "'That hand was mine!' exclaimed Hurry. I found the slender young thing bent to the earth, like an unfortunate creature borne down by misfortune, and stuck it up where you see it. After all, dear Slayer, I must allow you're getting to have an uncommon good eye for the woods. Tis improving, Hurry. Tis improving. I will acknowledge. But tis only a child's eye compared to some I know. There's Tamanund now, though a man so old that few remember when he was in his prime. Tamanund lets nothing escape his look, which is more like the scent of a hound than the sight of an eye. Then Uncas, the father of Chingachgook, and the lawful chief of the Mohicans, is another that it is almost hopeless to pass unseen. I am improving, I will allow. I am improving. 
but far from being perfect as yet. "'And who is this Chingachgook, of whom you talk so much, dear Slayer?' asked Hurry, as he moved off in the direction of the righted sapling. "'A loping redskin at the best, I make no question.' "'Not so, Hurry, but the best of loping redskins, as you call him. If he had his rights, he would be a great chief. But as it is, he is only a brave and just-minded Delaware. Respected, and even obeyed in some things, tis true, but of a fallen race, and belonging to a fallen people. Ah, Harry March, twould warm the heart within you to sit in their lodges of a winter's night, and listen to the traditions of the ancient greatness and power of the Mohicans. Harkee, friend Nathaniel, said Hurry, stopping short to face his companion, in order that his words might carry greater weight with them. If a man believed all that other people choose to say in their own favor, he might get an oversized opinion of them, and an undersized opinion of himself. These redskins are notable boasters, and I set down more than half of their traditions as pure talk. There is truth in what you say, Hurry. I'll not deny it, for I've seen it, and believe it. They do boast, but then that is a gift from nature, and it's sinful to withstand natural gifts. See, this is the spot you come to find." This remark cut short the discourse, and both the men now gave all their attention to the object immediately before them. Deerslayer pointed out to his companion the trunk of a huge linden, or basswood as it is termed in the language of the country, which had filled its time and fallen by its own weight. This tree, like so many millions of its brethren, lay where it had fallen, and was mouldering under the slow but certain influence of the seasons. The decay, however, had attacked its centre, even while it stood erect in the pride of vegetation bellowing out its heart, as disease sometimes destroys the vitals of animal life, even while a fair exterior is presented to the observer. As the trunk lay stretched for near a hundred feet along the earth, the quick eye of the hunter detected this peculiarity, and from this and other circumstances he knew it to be the tree of which March was in search. Aye, here we have what we want," cried Hurry, looking in at the larger end of the linden. Everything is as snug as if it had been left in an old woman's cupboard. Come, lend me a hand, dear Slayer, and we'll be afloat in half an hour." At this call the hunter joined his companion, and the two went to work deliberately and regularly, like men accustomed to the sort of thing in which they were employed. In the first place Hurry removed some pieces of bark that lay before the large opening in the tree and which the other declared to be disposed in a way that would have been more likely to attract attention than it could seal the cover, had any straggler passed that way. The two then drew out a bark canoe, containing its seats, paddles, and other appliances, even to fishing lines and rods. This vessel was by no means small, but such was its comparative lightness, and so gigantic was the strength of hurry, that the latter shouldered it with seeming ease, declining all assistance even in the act of raising it to the awkward position in which he was obliged to hold it. "'Lead ahead, Deerslayer,' said March, "'and open the bushes. The rest I can do for myself.' The other obeyed, and the men left the spot, Deerslayer clearing the way for his companion, and inclining to the right or to the left, as the latter directed. In about ten minutes they both broke suddenly into the brilliant light of the sun on a low gravelly point that was washed by water on quite half its outline, 
An exclamation of surprise broke from the lips of Deerslayer, an exclamation that was low and guardedly made, however, for his habits were much more thoughtful and regulated than those of the reckless hurry, when on reaching the margin of the lake he beheld the view that unexpectedly met his gaze. It was, in truth, sufficiently striking to merit a brief description. On a level with the point lay a broad sheet of water, so placid and limpid that it resembled a bed of the pure mountain atmosphere compressed into a setting of hills and woods. Its length was about three leagues, while its breadth was irregular, expanding to half a league or even more, opposite to the point, and contracting to less than half that distance more to the southward. Of course, its margin was irregular, being indented by bays and broken by many projecting low points. At its northern or nearest end it was bounded by an isolated mountain, lower land falling off east and west gracefully relieving the sweep of the outline. Still the character of the country was mountainous, high hills or low mountains rising abruptly from the water on quite nine-tenths of its circuit. The exceptions, indeed, only served a little to vary the scene, and even beyond the parts of the shore that were comparatively low, the background was high, though more distant. But the most striking peculiarities of this scene were its solemn solitude and sweet repose. On all sides, Wherever the eye turned, nothing met it but the mirror-like surface of the lake, the placid view of heaven, and the dense setting of woods. So rich and fleecy were the outlines of the forest, that scarce an opening could be seen, the whole visible earth from the rounded mountain-top to the water's edge, presenting one unvaried hue of unbroken verdure. As if vegetation were not satisfied with a triumph so complete, the trees overhung the lake itself, shooting out towards the light and there were miles along its eastern shore where a boat might have pulled beneath the branches of dark, Rembrandt-looking hemlocks, quivering aspens, and melancholy pines. In a word, the hand of man had never defaced or deformed any part of this native scene, which lay bathed in the sunlight, a glorious picture of affluent forest grandeur, softened by the balminess of June, and relieved by the beautiful variety afforded by the presence of so broad an expanse of water. This is grand, tis solemn, tis an education of itself to look upon, exclaimed Deerslayer, as he stood leaning on his rifle, and gazing to the right and left, north and south, above and beneath, in whichever direction his eye could wander. Not a tree disturbed even by a redskin hand, as I can discover, but everything left in the ordering of the Lord, to live and die according to his own designs and laws. Hurry, your Judith ought to be a moral and well-disposed young woman if she has passed half the time you mention in the centre of a spot so favoured. That's naked truth, and yet the gal has the vagaries. All her time has not been passed here, howsoever, old Tom having the custom, afore I knowed him, of going to spend the winters in the neighbourhood of the settlers, or under the guns of the forts. No, no, Jude has caught more than is for her good from the settlers, and especially from the gallantifying officers. If she has, if she has, hurry, this is a school to set her mind right again. But what is this I see off here, abreast of us, that seems too small for an island, and too large for a boat, though it stands in the midst of the water? Why, that is what these galantine gentry from the forts call Muskrat Castle, and old Tom himself will grin at the name, though it bears so hard on his own nature and character. Tis the stationary house, there being two this which never moves, and the other that floats, being sometimes in one part of the lake and sometimes in another. 
The last goes by the name of the Ark, though what may be the meaning of the word is more than I can tell you. It must come from the missionaries, Hurry, whom I have heard speak and read of such a thing. They say that the earth was once covered with water, and that Noah, with his children, was saved from drowning by building a vessel called an ark, in which he embarked in season. Some of the Delawares believe this tradition, and some deny it. But it behooves you and me, as white men born, to put our faith in its truth. Do you see anything of this ark? Tis down south, no doubt, or anchored in some of the bays. But the canoe is ready, and fifteen minutes will carry two such paddles as yourn and mine to the castle." At this suggestion Deerslayer helped his companion to place the different articles in the canoe which was already afloat. This was no sooner done than the two frontiermen embarked, and by a vigorous push sent the light bark some eight or ten rods from the shore. Hurry now took the seat in the stern, while Deerslayer placed himself forward and by leisurely but steady strokes of the paddles the canoe glided across the placid sheet, towards the extraordinary-looking structure that the former had styled Muskrat Castle. Several times the men ceased paddling, and looked about them at the scene, as new glimpses opened from behind points, enabling them to see farther down the lake, or to get broader views of the wooded mountains. The only changes, however, were in the new forms of the hills, the varying curvature of the bays, and the wider reaches of the valley south, the whole earth apparently being clothed in a gala dress of leaves. "'This is a sight to warm the heart,' exclaimed Deerslayer, when they had thus stopped for the fourth or fifth time. "'The lake seems made to let us get an insight into the noble forests, and land and water alike stand in the beauty of God's providence. Do you say, hurry, that there is no man who calls himself lawful owner of all these glories? None but the king, lad. He may pretend to some right of that nature, but he is so far away that his claim will never trouble old Tom Hutter, who has got possession, and is like to keep it, as long as his life lasts. Tom is no squatter, not being on land. I call him a floater. I envy that man. I know it's wrong, and I strive agin the feeling. But I envy that man. Don't think, hurry, that I'm consorting any plan to put myself in his moccasins, for such a thought doesn't harbor in my mind. But I can't help a little envy. Tis a natural feelin', and the best of us are but natural, after all, and give way to such feelin's at times." "'You've only to marry Hattie to inherit half the estate,' cried Hurry, laughing. "'The gal is comely. Nay, if it wasn't for her sister's beauty she would be even handsome and then her wits are so small that you may easily convert her into one of your own way of thinking, in all things. Do you take Hetty off the old fellow's hands, and I'll engage he'll give you an interest in every deer you can knock over within five miles of his lake?" "'Does game abound?' suddenly demanded the other, who paid but little attention to March's raillery. "'It has the country to itself. Scarce a trigger is pulled on it and as for the trappers this is not a region they greatly frequent. I ought not to be so much here myself, but Jude pulls one away, while the beaver pulls another. More than a hundred Spanish dollars has that creature cost me in the last two seasons, and yet I could not forego the wish to look upon her face once more." "'Do the red men often visit this lake, Hurry?' continued Deerslayer, pursuing his own train of thought. "'Why, they come and go, sometimes in parties, and sometimes singly. The country seems to belong to no native tribe in particular, and so it has fallen into the hands of the Hutter tribe. 
The old man tells me that some sharp ones have been wheedling the Mohawks for an Indian deed, in order to get a title out of the colony, but nothing has come of it, seeing that no one heavy enough for such a trade has yet meddled with the matter. The hunters have a good life-lease still of this wilderness. So much the better, so much the better, hurry. If I was King of England, the man that felled one of these trees without good occasion for the timber should be banished to a deserted and forlorn region, in which no four-footed animal ever trod. Right glad am I that Chingachgook appointed our meeting on this lake, for hitherto I of mine never looked on such a glorious spectacle. That's because you kept so much among the Delawares, in whose country there are no lakes. Now, farther north and farther west, these bits of water abound. And you're young, you may yet live to see em. But though there be other lakes, dear Slayer, there's no other Judith Hutter." At this remark his companion smiled, and then he dropped his paddle into the water as if in consideration of a lover's haste. Both now pulled vigorously until they got within a hundred yards of the castle, as Hurry familiarly called the house of Hutter, when they again ceased paddling, the admirer of Judith restraining his impatience the more readily, as he perceived that the building was untenanted at the moment. This new pause was to enable Deerslayer to survey the singular edifice, which was of a construction so novel as to merit a particular description. Muskrat Castle, as the house had been facetiously named by some waggish officer, stood in the open lake, at a distance of fully a quarter of a mile from the nearest shore. On every other side the water extended much farther, the precise position being distant about two miles from the northern end of the sheet, and near, if not quite, a mile from its eastern shore. As there was not the smallest appearance of any island, but the house stood on piles, with the water flowing beneath it, and Deerslayer had already discovered that the lake was of a great depth, he was fain to ask an explanation of this singular circumstance. Hurry solved the difficulty by telling him that, on this spot alone, a long, narrow shoal, which extended for a few hundred yards in a north and south direction, rose within six or eight feet of the surface of the lake, and that Hutter had driven piles into it, and placed his habitation on them for the purpose of security. The old fellow was burnt out three times, between the Indians and the hunters, and in one affray with the redskins he lost his only son, since which time he has taken to the water for safety. No one can attack him here, without coming in a boat, and the plunder and scalps would scarce be worth the trouble of digging out canoes. Then it's by no means sartain which would whip in such a scrimmage, for old Tom is well supplied with arms and ammunition, and the castle, as you may see, is a tight breastwork again light shot. Deerslayer had some theoretical knowledge of frontier warfare, though he had never yet been called on to raise his hand in anger against a fellow-creature. He saw that Hurry did not overrate the strength of this position in a military point of view, since it would not be easy to attack it without exposing the assailants to the fire of the besieged. A good deal of art had also been manifested in the disposition of the timber of which the building was constructed, and which afforded a protection much greater than was usual to the ordinary log-cabins of the frontier. The sides and ends were composed of the trunks of large pines, cut about nine feet long, and placed upright instead of being laid horizontally, as was the practice of the country. These logs were squared on three sides, and had large tenons on each end. 
massive sills were secured on the heads of the piles with suitable grooves dug out of their upper surfaces which had been squared for the purpose and the lower tenons of the upright pieces were placed in these grooves giving them secure fastening below plates had been laid in the upper ends of the upright logs and were kept in their places by a similar contrivance the several corners of the structure being well fastened by scarfing and pinning the sills and plates the doors were made of smaller logs similarly squared and the roof was composed of light poles firmly united and well covered with bark the effect of this ingenious arrangement was to give its owner a house that could be approached only by water the sides of which were composed of logs closely wedged together which were two feet thick in their thinnest parts and which could be separated only by a deliberate and laborious use of human hands or by the slow operation of time the outer surface of the building was rude and uneven the logs being of unequal sizes but the squared surfaces within each gave both the sides and door as uniform an appearance as was desired either for use or show the chimney was not the least singular portion of the castle as hurry made his companion observe while he explained the process by which it had been made the material was a stiff clay properly worked which had been put together in a mould of sticks and suffered to harden a foot or two at a time commencing at the bottom when the entire chimney had thus been raised and had been properly bound in with outward props a brisk fire was kindled and kept going until it was burned to something like a brick red this had not been an easy operation nor had it succeeded entirely but by dint of filling the cracks with fresh clay a safe fireplace and chimney had been obtained in the end this part of the work stood on the log door secured beneath by an extra pile there were a few other peculiarities about this dwelling which will better appear in the course of the narrative old tom is full of contrivances added hurry and he set his heart on the success of his chimney which threatened more than once to give out altogether but perseverance will even overcome smoke and now he has a comfortable cabin of it though it did promise at one time to be a chinky sort of a flue to carry flames and fire you seem to know the whole history of the castle hurry chimney and sides said deerslayer smiling is love so overcoming that it causes a man to study the story of his sweetheart's habitation partly that lad and partly eyesight returned the good-natured giant laughing there was a large gang of us in the lake the summer the old fellow built and we helped him along with the job i raised no small part of the weight of them uprights with my own shoulders and the axes flew i can inform you master natty while we were being it among the trees ashore the old devil is no way stingy about food and as we had often eat at his hearth we thought we would just house him comfortably afore we went to albany with our skins yes many is the meal i've swallowed in tom hutter's cabins and hetty though so weak in the way of wits has a wonderful particular way about a frying-pan or a gridiron while the parties were thus discoursing the canoe had been gradually drawing nearer to the castle, and was now so close as to require but a single stroke of a paddle to reach the landing. This was at a floored platform in front of the entrance, that might have been some twenty feet square. "'Old Tom calls this sort of a wharf his dooryard,' observed Hurry, as he fastened the canoe, after he and his companion had left it. "'And the gallants from the forts have named it the castle court though what a court can have to do here is more than i can tell you seeing that there is no law 
"'Tis as I supposed. Not a soul within, but the whole family is off on a voyage of discovery." While Hurry was bustling about the dooryard, examining the fishing-spears, rods, nets, and other similar appliances of a frontier cabin, Deerslayer, whose manner was altogether more rebuked and quiet, entered the building with a curiosity that was not usually exhibited by one so long trained in Indian habits. The interior of the castle was as faultlessly neat as its exterior was novel. The entire space, some twenty feet by forty, was subdivided into several small sleeping-rooms, the apartment into which he first entered serving equally for the ordinary uses of its inmates, and for a kitchen. The furniture was of the strange mixture that it is not uncommon to find in the remotely situated log tenements of the interior. Most of it was rude, and to the last degree rustic, but there was a clock with a handsome case of dark wood in a corner, and two or three chairs with a table and bureau, that had evidently come from some dwelling of more than usual pretension. The clock was industriously ticking, but its leaden-looking hands did no discredit to their dull aspect, for they pointed to the hour of eleven, though the sun plainly showed it was some time past the turn of the day. There was also a dark, massive chest. The kitchen utensils were of the simplest kind, and far from numerous, but every article was in its place, and showed the nicest care in its condition. After Deerslayer had cast a look about him in the outer room, he raised a wooden latch, and entered a narrow passage that divided the inner end of the house into two equal parts, frontier usages being no way scrupulous, and his curiosity being strongly excited, the young man now opened a door and found himself in a bedroom. A single glance sufficed to show that the apartment belonged to females. The bed was of the feathers of wild geese, and filled nearly to overflowing, but it lay in a rude bunk raised only a foot from the door. On one side of it were arranged on pegs various dresses of a quality much superior to what one would expect to meet in such a place, with ribbons and other similar articles to correspond. Pretty shoes, with handsome silver buckles, such as were then worn by females in easy circumstances, were not wanting, and no less than six fans of gay colors were placed half open, in a way to catch the eye by their conceits and hues. Even the pillow on this side of the bed was covered with finer linen than its companion, and it was ornamented with a small ruffle. A cap, coquettishly decorated with ribbons, hung above it, and a pair of long gloves, such as were rarely used in those days by persons of the laboring classes, were pinned ostentatiously to it, as if with an intention to exhibit them there if they could not be shown on the owner's arms. All this Deerslayer saw, and noted with a degree of minuteness that would have done credit to the habitual observation of his friends, the Delawares. Nor did he fail to perceive the distinction that existed between the appearances on the different sides of the bed, the head of which stood against the wall. On that opposite to the one just described, everything was homely and uninviting except through its perfect neatness. The few garments that were hanging from the pegs were of the coarsest materials and of the commonest forms, while nothing seemed made for show. Of ribbons there was not one, nor was there either cap or kerchief beyond those which Hutter's daughters might be fairly entitled to wear. It was now several years since Deerslayer had been on a spot especially devoted to the uses of females of his own color and race. The sight brought back to his mind a rush of childish recollections, and he lingered in the room with a tenderness of feeling to which he had long been a stranger. He bethought him of his mother, whose homely vestments he remembered to have seen hanging on pegs like those which he felt must belong to Hetty Hutter, 
and he bethought himself of a sister, whose incipient and native taste for finery had exhibited itself somewhat in the manner of that of Judith, though necessarily in a less degree. These little resemblances opened a long hidden vein of sensations, and as he quitted the room it was with a saddened mien. He looked no further, but returned slowly and thoughtfully towards the dooryard. "'If old Tom has taken to a new calling, and has been trying his hand at the traps,' cried Hurry, who had been coolly examining the borderer's implements, "'if that is his humour, and you're disposed to remain in these parts, we can make an uncommon comfortable season of it. For, while the old man and I outknowledge the beaver, you can fish, and knock down the deer, to keep body and soul together. I've always give the poor hunters half a share, but one as active and sartain as yourself might expect a full one. Thank ye, Hurry. Thank ye, with all my heart. But I do a little beavering for myself as occasions offer. Tis true the Delawares call me Deerslayer, but it's not so much because I'm pretty fatal with the venison as because that while I kill so many bucks and does, I've never yet taken the life of a fellow-creature. They say their traditions do not tell of another who had shed so much blood of animals that had not shed the blood of man. I hope they don't account you chicken-hearted, lad. A faint-hearted man is like a no-tailed beaver. I don't believe, Hurry, that they account me as out-of-the-way timorsome, even though they may not account me as out-of-the-way brave. But I'm not quarrelsome, and that goes a great way towards keeping blood off the hands, among the hunters and redskins, and then, Harry March, it keeps blood off the conscience, too. Well, for my part, I account game, a redskin, and a Frenchman as pretty much the same thing. Though I'm as unquarrelsome a man, too, as there is in all the colonies, I despise a quarreler as I do a cur-dog. But one has no need to be over-scrupulsome when it's the right time to show the flint. I look upon him as the most of a man who acts nearest the right, hurry. But this is a glorious spot, and my eyes never a-weary looking at it. "'Tis your first acquaintance with a lake, and these ideas come over us all at such times. Lakes have a gentle character, as I say, being pretty much water and land, and points and bays." As this definition by no means met the feelings that were uppermost in the mind of the young hunter, he made no immediate answer, but stood gazing at the dark hills and the glassy water in silent enjoyment. "'Have the governors or the king's people given this lake a name?' he suddenly asked, as if struck with a new idea. If they've not begun to blaze their trees and set up their compasses, and line off their maps, it's likely they've not bethought them to disturb nature with a name. They've not got to that yet, and the last time I went in with skins, one of the king's surveyors was questioning me concerning all the region hereabouts. He had heard that there was a lake in this quarter, and had got some general notions about it, such as that there was water and hills, but how much of either he knowed no more than you know of the Mohawk tongue. I didn't open the trap any wider than was necessary, giving him but poor encouragement in the way of farms and clearings. In short, I left on his mind some such opinion of this country as a man gets of a spring of dirty water with a path to it that is so muddy that one mires afore he sets out. He told me they hadn't got the spot down yet on their maps though I conclude that is a mistake, for he showed me his parchment, and there is a lake down on it where there is no lake in fact, and which is about fifty miles from the place where it ought to be, if they meant it for this. I don't think my account will encourage him to mark down another, by way of improvement." Here Hurry laughed heartily, 
such tricks being particularly grateful to a set of men who dreaded the approaches of civilization as a curtailment of their own lawless empire. The egregious errors that existed in the maps of the day, all of which were made in Europe, were, moreover, a standing topic of ridicule among them, for, if they had not science enough to make any better themselves, they had sufficient local information to detect the gross blunders contained in those that existed. Any one who will take the trouble to compare these unanswerable evidences of the topographical skill of our fathers a century since, with the more accurate sketches of our own time, will at once perceive that the men of the woods had a sufficient justification for all their criticism on this branch of the skill of the colonial governments, which did not at all hesitate to place a river or a lake a degree or two out of the way, even though they lay within a day's march of the inhabited parts of the country. I'm glad it has no name, resumed Deerslayer, or at least no pale-face name, for their christenings always foretell waste and destruction. No doubt, howsoever, the redskins have their modes of knowing it, and the hunters and trappers, too. They are likely to call the place by something reasonable and resembling. As for the tribes, each has its tongue and its own way of calling things. And they treat this part of the world just as they treat all others. Among ourselves we've got to calling the place the glimmer-glass, seeing that its whole basin is so often hinged with pines cast upward to its face as if it would throw back the hills that hang over it. There is an outlet, I know, for all lakes have outlets, and the rock at which I am to meet Chingachgook stands near an outlet. Has that no colony name yet? In that particular they've got the advantage of us having one end, and that the biggest, in their own keeping. They've given it a name which has found its way up to its source, names naturally working upstream. No doubt, dear Slayer, you've seen the Susquehanna down in the Delaware country? That I have and hunted along its banks a hundred times. That and this are the same in fact, and I suppose the same in sound. I am glad they've been compelled to keep the red men's name, for it would be too hard to rob them of both land and name." Deerslayer made no answer, but he stood leaning on his rifle, gazing at the view which so much delighted him. The reader is not to suppose, however, that it was the picturesque alone which so strongly attracted his attention. The spot was very lovely, of a truth and it was then seen in one of its most favorable moments, the surface of the lake being as smooth as glass and as limpid as pure air, throwing back the mountains, clothed in dark pines, along the whole of its eastern boundary, the points thrusting forward their trees even to nearly horizontal lines, while the bays were seen glittering through an occasional arch beneath, left by a vault fretted with branches and leaves. It was the air of deep repose the solitudes that spoke of scenes and forests untouched by the hands of man. The reign of nature, in a word, that gave so much pure delight to one of his habits and turn of mind. Still, he felt, though it was unconsciously, like a poet also. If he found a pleasure in studying this large and to him unusual opening into the mysteries and forms of the woods, as one is gratified in getting broader views of any subject that has long occupied his thoughts, he was not insensible to the innate loveliness of such a landscape, neither, but felt a portion of that soothing of the spirit which is a common attendant of a scene so thoroughly pervaded by the holy cairn of nature. End of chapter 2 Recording by Bill Borst